Bonjour, mon nom est Justin Declou. Hello, my name is Justin Declou. Et je suis ici aujourd'hui avec, and I'm here today with... Uh, Will Sloan. Et vous écoutez le Club du Cinéma Important. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about the National Film Board of Canada. I don't have to do this bilingual thing. <laughs> no, right? you do not. Because I dropped French after grade 10. Did you? Could you still like understand and speak a little bit of it? or <sighs> Probably a little bit. Bonjour, ça va? <laughs> Où est la bibliothèque? Est-ce que je peux aller aux toilettes? <laughs> So the National Film Board of Canada. Tell français, tell français, c'est magnifique, c'est incroyable. And then the skeleton. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the National Film Board of Canada is probably known to most people who grew up in our great nation as the thing that teachers would put on when they didn't want to teach a class. <laughs> like they'd get that tape that would have the clear plastic with the little green logo and just pop something in. And we usually either watch a documentary or an animated film. Like I remember seeing the Log Riders waltz yes. like a million times in school which is just a little three minute animated song that was made in 1979 by john weldon and i don't know why it got so much distribution but it did and he goes purling down <laughs> and down the white water that's how the, the log, log driver turns to step lightly <laughs> beautiful yeah. i watched it recently holds up that's oh, great all well, their cartoons are great or like something like the cat came back which is like the cat came back the cat came back is like seriously up there with one froggy evening in terms of perfect cartoons and i don't understand why there was such a widespread of this maybe they were doing their job very well in the 90s i remember going to the nature museum in ottawa and there was just a booth where you could just watch the cat came back and i did it over and over <laughs> and over again But the National Film Board is also famous for being nominated for 74 Academy Awards, wow. winning 12. Wow. And for people that don't know, it was formed in 1938, spearheaded by a man named John Grierson. He defined the word documentary. And when he started the National Film Board, they basically went into making propaganda docs because World War II just came right around the corner. You say that um, when we think of the National Film Board, we think of the cartoons and we think of being in class. I often think of, you know nature documentaries stuff about uh seals stuff about uh, very somber face you know da david suzuki mm -hmm. narrating something stuff that doesn't get the pulse uh racing yeah because the nfb is not really known for its fictional feature films they're known for their docs and they're animated and shorts. it's like you, your tax dollars mm -hmm. are funding this so yeah exactly yeah there was that idea especially even in the late 30s that for film to have any value it has to reflect people's actual beliefs mm. and the nfb existed to have a mirror up to canadians and give them an identity that they're reflected in for example by uh making documentaries about hockey or making yeah. documentaries about like things that canadians can automatically associate themselves with that they don't necessarily hold in a very high regard in the united states yeah because canada has always struggled to establish an identity for itself you know when we're next to the biggest exporter of culture mm -hmm. in the world and we speak the same language and have basically all the same culture uh you it's know, tough to kind of yeah. go what is canadian so it helps to have the sort of a government-funded uh film company you know going out there and filming those seals and those uh those mooses and whatever john grierson actually said that he wanted to use a documentary as a hammer to shape minds and he's quoted as going we must take them by the throat and convince them that they're great people <laughs> 
<laughs> hey, you don't need to convince me. Exalt the common mind. Mm. Um, there's actually a doc called Shameless Propaganda by Robert Lower that goes through all these documentaries that were coming out. Um, Canada actually technically won one of the first Oscars for Best Documentary with a propaganda piece called Churchill's Island. Mm. And they made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Most of them don't have very much value. But what does have value is Norman McLaren who came to the NFB in 1941, um, lured here by um, John Grierson, and he ended up doing animation. And he's the filmmaker more than any other, if, who, if somebody were to say to me, who is the true auteur of the National Film Board, I would point to him. So I, it's weird that when I was a kid, I don't think I saw any Norm McLaren animations. I had a VHS tape called Leonard Malton's Favorites from the National <laughs> Film Board of Canada. Whoa, so the Leonard Malton picked NFB shorts? This was uh, Leonard Malton at the height of his Entertainment Tonight celebrity. And yeah, he, so The Cat Came Back was on it. That's probably why mm-hmm. I, I got it. it. It also had, yeah, The Log Driver's Waltz. Um, it had a lot of uh, Norman McLaren stuff. And it had him like kind of, you know, in between the cartoons saying the history of the NFB, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, of course, I was in it for The Cat Came Back, you know, the, the lighter, funnier stuff. And so it was it was a little surprising at that age to see these shorts. You know, Norman McLaren was so interested in the relationship between sound and image and uh, in particular of kind of communicating music on film. So we had uh, one or two cartoons that were scored to the music of Oscar Peterson, and he would literally scratch into the film and color the film. Yeah, that's what he was famous for, was that the animation would happen in a physical way that he could... He I saw a doc of him saying he likes to do it this way because he can do a bunch of frames and then run it right through the projector to see how it looks. Yeah. So there's no, like, middleman in that. And... Maybe this is kind of a facile comparison, but I sort of think of him as kind of like the uh, the lighthearted, upbeat Stan Brackage. <laughs> yeah, he's very playful yes. in his shorts. Like, I can understand as a kid if I'd seen it, and I probably did, and it just went right over my head, but that it's a lot of fun to watch, like almost everything he did. Yeah. Like something like um, Neighbors, which is animated in real life people doing stop motion things, fighting over a fence. It actually won the best short at the Oscars. That's probably his most famous film, isn't it? I I actually saw it being circulated around, uh, you know, the clickbait corners of the internet recently. It's like this, you know, 1954 Canadian short perfectly explains Trump's America or or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Because it was kind of a Cold War parable, right? Mm-hmm. You know, And then stuff like Blickety Blank are just kind of images dancing on screen. So Norm McLaren, weirdly not Canadian. Born in Scotland. I mean, you know, Canada, what is Canada if not a diaspora of Absolutely. other nations? Yeah. But another part of the NFB would be Unit B, which existed from 1948 to 1964. It was originally led by Tom Daly, and they kind of pioneered the Candid Eye series of documentaries that played on the CBC, which was something that really defined what direct cinema was, Mm. which is like, I'm filming an event and I'm trying not to get involved in it or giving it like narrative shape and just letting it play out for an audience. And that's important because there a bunch of luminaries came out of that, including Norman McLaren, Gerald Potterton, and specifically one person, Don Owen, 
who was a filmmaker for Unit B, making these documentaries that were known as the kind of weirder ones, almost like the B pictures. Like they were more philosophical, they were more existential than just taking information and presenting it to an audience. So Don Owen is a filmmaker who was given the task to make a 30-minute documentary on juvenile delinquency. It wasn't about parole officers? Yes, it was supposed to center around them. And the story goes that it was during the summer and that all the NFB heads were like gone on vacation. So he just went out to shoot this thing and he kept ordering more and more film and he just kept filming and filming and filming till he had about 28 hours of film. And what he ended up with was a fictional feature length film called Nobody Waves Goodbye. Now, Nobody Waves Goodbye is one, again, I didn't hear until about a few years ago. And I think it's one of the best Canadian films. I only heard about it. I saw it for the first time about a year ago. Uh, it was playing at the Review Cinema on a double bill with Don Owen's documentary, Ladies and Gentlemen, uh, Leonard Cohen, mm-hmm. which is why I went. I never heard about it, but it just totally blew me away. And it was particularly interesting to see this film kind of in light of all this DIY cinema that's happening in Toronto right now, like the, the sort of stuff that Kazakh Radwanski is making um, or a, a movie like Sleeping Giant. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely, I can definitely see a link between low budget, uh, free form, minimal screenplay. Uh, or like no screenplay in or, this yeah. case. Yeah. So like Don Owen was obviously inspired by the French New Wave, like Godard and stuff like that. And he was specifically inspired by a filmmaker um, in Quebec called Gilles Grou, who made another fictional improv film called um, Le Chat dans le Sac, or The Cat in the Bag. Mm. Uh, that film, I don't think, is as strong as Nobody Waved Goodbye, but that was the main inspiration. And he heard higher up saying, you know, he just grabbed the opportunity and he went and did it without asking for permission. So Don Owen was like, well, I'm going to do that too. With Nobody Waved Goodbye, I'm always receptive to a movie that I think is like a very accurate depiction of youth or teenage years, a particularly a very unsentimental depiction. This one follows this 16, 17, 18-year-old kid. Yeah, uh, kind of uh, middle class. Yeah, uh, living in the suburbs of Etobicoke, which Etobicoke then was very different than it is now. It really was a suburb. Mm-hmm. It felt different than Toronto. And he's, he's this kid who's, you know, very arrogant, very restless, it really captures the arrogance the teenagers get when they think, oh, I'm so much better than my surroundings. That's all he talks about I, is I, like, I I'm not going to be like my dad. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to like make something of my life. But he still has no kind of political ideology. Yeah. It's just kind of rebelling against whatever comes up. And he has no understanding of kind of like the forces that would lead his dad into the life or, you know, the strength that his dad would have needed to build this life. For or himself. any kind of consequence that come from his action. Because almost <laughs> within the first 15 minutes... His dad brings his car home that he's really impressed by, so he decides to steal it and gets picked up by the cops. And as he's being dragged to the jail cell, he's like, call my dad! Call yes. my dad! Yes. Like, don't put me in jail for the night! Yes. But at the same time, his parents seem to have no idea what to do with him because of his very mild rebelling. They just try to push him away. And they're like, if you don't, like, fix yourself up, we're not going to take care of you. Well, I guess it's like the tough love approach, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the same time, he does have a girlfriend played by Julie Briggs who is trying to deal with this kind of, like, young kid who is going in really no direction but doesn't want to follow down the path that's expected of him. I have a really, watching this movie, a real, like, there but for the grace of God go I uh, experience watching this kid, like... As he gets in deep with this basically mob guy who's running the parking lot. Uh, run at, by... Uh, Mr. John Vernon <laughs> from uh, Ernest Goes to Camp. <laughs> and, and you know, he, he's got this girlfriend who he wants to move away with, but 
uh, he, he keeps getting deeper and deeper into debt and into uh, j- just this big hole that he's dug for himself and he's too proud to get out of it. Like, I can see how a 16-year-old kid would fall into that. Yeah, you know? especially if the parents are, like, kind of pushing him away and being like, if you don't do this, then go away. Like, yeah. there's no trying to understand him or anything well, like that. the mother, though, she offer- she lets him come back home and she encourages him to come back home, but on, on the condition that he focus on his studies for the next three months and not see his girlfriend. And, you know, when you're 16, three months is a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the end of the world yeah. if that doesn't get to happen. Yeah. Uh, doing some research, I was shocked to discover that this was all improvised. Like a lot of the times the actors would be given an idea of what they should do and then they just ran with it. There's a dinner table scene that takes place in the uh, beginning of the film that feels like a Robert Altman scene mm-hmm. before... Robert Altman became a thing where they're all talking over each other and they're having multiple conversations. And I think that could only exist in the context of like, we're shooting a documentary. So just go with it. I love the scene where the kid uh, goes to his dad at his work and he asks his dad for $300 and his dad is like, you're a bad investment. It's an incredibly powerful scene. (laughs) There's a scene at the end where his girlfriend admits to him, spoiler for a film from 1964, that she's pregnant. And when the actor shot it, the uh, main kid didn't know that's what she was going to say. So his like reaction is completely <laughs> real where he's like, he laughs and you can tell there's like, I don't know how I'm supposed to go forward with this or what decision I'm supposed to be making. Uh, that's and that's why, you know, for a film from 64 feels so like vibrant and still kind of of the moment mm. because it existed so purely when it was made. While this was kind of an anomaly in the NFB history of making kind of a fictional film and they had no real idea how what to do with it. Like they kind of dumped it in theaters and it wasn't until it played in New York that it actually started getting attention. Yeah, it got some good reviews in New York. You know, as as with most things, you know, failed in its home <laughs> country, becomes a success somewhere else. But the NFB did make feature films. They attempted one called Drylanders in nineteen sixty three that was kind of got a tepid. Oh, reaction. Highlander. I love that movie. <laughs> yeah. With Christopher Lambert yeah, yeah. and uh, cutting off heads and stuff like that. Yeah. No, Drylanders was about um settlers coming to Canada and finding that it was a miserable experience. But people who were doing like really revolutionary things in the NFB were the French crew. And those include people like uh, the aforementioned Gilles Gru, who made The Cat in the Bag, Michel Bro, a director cinematographer, uh, and Denis Arquin, who directed uh, The Barbarian Invasions, which won the Canadian Oscars, which had that famous announcer during the Oscars being like, this is the third nomination for Canada and their second win or <laughs> something like that. Yeah, but you know, the thing I, I said earlier that when we think of the NFB, we think of like, you know, boring documentaries about seals and stuff, but you know, all their movies are online and you can like lose an afternoon finding all the strange detours and byways that have happened in the NFB's history. One of my very favorite movies to come out of the NFB is called Buster Keaton rides again. And it's companion film is the rail rotter Buster Keaton in 1964 towards the very end of his life. I think a year or two before he died. Uh, so he was pushing 70. Uh, he came to Canada to film this basically tourism film. Yeah, like a travel documentary. Yeah, this 30-minute thing where he travels across Canada on a little railroad car and he sees the sights and does some some mild gags. And Buster Keaton Rides Again is a documentary directed by John Spotton. Who was actually the cinematographer for The Rail Rider. You know, as somebody who loves Buster Keaton... I value this movie as kind of the best insight we have into watching him work. There's really no other documentaries of like Buster Keaton, like working on film sets. And he was always known as like the stone faced silent guy. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's kind of a mystique 
behind uh, him that's completely destroyed in a good way in Buster Keaton Rides Again. Well, you can see that he actually, he refused to smile in front of a camera because he thought it ruined his image. But uh, of course he smiled a lot in real life. And in this, it almost seems like a challenge. Like, can we catch Buster smiling on camera? <laughs> you know, it ends with him like singing a banjo song and everything. And he kind of cracks up towards the end of it. Or like cheering on his favorite baseball team on the television. Yeah. Um, but the silent films were shot without a script. Buster and his gag man would get together and they'd work out the gags on the fly. And you see him doing the same thing here, maybe in slightly more impoverished circumstances with the director of the Railroader. And you can see that even deep into his 60s, making this kind of modest uh, travelogue film for the NFB, he still cares so much about the integrity of a gag. At one point, a gag that he thought up and kind of engineered gets changed uh, on him at the last second and you can see it like tearing him up on the inside well the gag is he's gonna uh go with his little car over a big bridge and he's gonna like pull out a map but then he's gonna lose track of the map and it's gonna like the wind is gonna get it over his face and he's gonna be struggling and his vision's gonna be blocked the crew quite reasonably thinks well this is way too dangerous for an old man to be doing a little railroad cart over a bridge so they change it so that he's doing his laundry and he's like no this will not do it's like i do i do more dangerous things just just mowing the lawn (laughs) and he gets and buster keaton being the actor famous for breaking his own neck yeah but he's like a philosopher of the gag he cares very deeply about about just the the integrity of it and the, the spirit of a gag. So eventually he, he gets so pissed off that they change the gag and they do it his way. And th- what went into the movie is him struggling with the ma- with the map over Good the Good gag. The Rail Rider is more amusing than it is funny, but it's still beautiful to see all these crazy vistas and Buster Keaton zooming along on that little cart. And you know, Buster Keaton rides again is also valuable for just capturing Keaton at this particular moment in his career. Uh, You mean like on the doors of death? Well, but he, so after he got fired from MGM, he basically spent 20 years doing burlesque shows Mm -hmm. and, and struggling to make a living. But then towards the end of his life, his movies started to get reevaluated. Well, television came around and they got into the circuit, right? Yeah. And like a movie like the general, which for a long time was believed to be in the public domain, played on television all the time yeah and you know the the critics started to see and he he got hired for movies like you know beach blanket bingo or whatever which you know are shit but he was making a good living there's some moments in the film where you see small crowds of people gather around him and their faces are just beaming when he just like signs an autograph or something like that yeah so you can see that at, at his age he's like it's at this point in his career when things are kind of on the upswing for him and he's he's working and his legacy is kind of secure. So the NFB, like I said before, they did go into feature filmmaking more in the 70s. They made the arguably most famous film of all time that came from Canada, which was Mon Oncle Antoine, a.k.a. My Uncle Anthony, Anthony I guess. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't have the same quite ring to it. I don't think it's ever been translated that way. <laughs> I think it's always been Mon Oncle Antoine. And there's, they made like a whole bunch, like they really attempted to start a feature film division, but like any kind of cycle, the government, uh, which was probably conservative at the time, came in and cut their funding. So that kind of disappeared by that the That would 90s. be the Mulroney government, I yep, believe. that which, would be. Which was our Reagan. But there still were documentaries, feature-length ones, that are actually great and worthwhile to watch. We watched one called Kanesatake, which I'm probably saying incredibly incorrectly, 
also subtitled 270 Years of Resistance, a film directed by Alanis Obamsawin. Which is probably how to pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, Alan- Alanis O, which is what I'm going to call her because I don't want to disrespect this great filmmaker by mangling her name. Yep. Uh, has, is kind of the preeminent uh, cinematic chronicler of uh, Aboriginal life in Canada. Most recently, she made a documentary called uh, We Can't Make the Same Mistake Twice. Uh, that was uh, something of a success at TIFF. Mm-hmm. And this one is a two-hour chronicle of this insane siege that happened in the town of Oka, which dealt with a Mohawk tribe rising up against, like, it sounds like a movie, an evil corporation who wanted to just expand a golf course. Isn't that insane? A, that is like so a, crazy. Like a, like a golf course. So they were going to take over this, you know, long-time uh, Aboriginal reservation. Which had a cemetery within it. Yeah. And they just wanted to clear that out just to make it an 18-holer. Yeah. Instead of how many holes it and had. And of course, you know, Brian Mulroney, the Prime Minister, totally in favor of it. Yeah, The Premier, no totally problem. in favor of it. Yeah, but the Could Mo- you imagine that happening now? Well, uh, actually, maybe it could it happen It probably now. happened they're, now. They're building a fucking pipeline over, over a reservation now. Yeah. So. so what ended up happening and what this documentary uh, chronicles in very rigorous detail from like a bunch of different perspectives is that they literally put up barriers and it became a siege situation where people could not get in and they wanted to hold out as long as they could and try to negotiate um, this not happening. And it's crazy that within the first 15 minutes, the townspeople of Oka, um, a lot of them, are already like super pissed off. I guess their roads are being blocked and they can't get to places more easily, which leads to them burning an effigy of an indigenous person, yeah. like out of anger. Yeah. That is insane. I mean, this movie is exhausting to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, like, I mean that in a good way. Like, there's this initial burst of energy in the protest, uh, but then, like so many protests of this nature, it kind of stretches on and on, and it's hard to. Be, it lasted seventy plus yeah, days. It's hard to sustain that initial momentum, especially when you're going up against an opposition that is literally the government of Canada. And they called in the Quebec police right away. I guess like muscle you, them out. You've got the army here who are driving tanks up to the border of the reservation, basically just to intimidate them. You got the you've got the army blocking the entrance so that. Nobody can bring in any food or any clothing uh, clothing for the winter, which is coming up. At one point, they do get some food in and the army poked everything and like broke everything that they were giving to them. So it makes you just think like, like, yeah, you can protest this, but my God, you're up against such an opposition. At some point, it just becomes hopeless. I mean, it's awful. (laughs) I mean, it's a real tough watch and you get to see like how everyone is reacting in like a real like down on the ground fashion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you get a sense of like this community as this big organism, you know. But this happened in 1990. Like it's kind of crazy. But like you said, it just happened again with the oil sands. (laughs) And that also like it just lasted too long. Right. Yeah. And finally it was just dispersed. And when they finally like the police came and kicked everybody off, like, it probably just made one news item at the bottom of an hour. Yeah, and, you know, we see in this documentary the sense that, like, maybe if it happened today, it would be different. But the news was such that 
it was easy to just create a monolithic impression mm-hmm. of, well, okay, we've got these protesters in here who were terrorists basically, and they're wielding guns and they're throwing rocks at your cars. Mm-hmm. And like, these are bad people. And Hey, we got Brian Mulroney on TV saying that they're terrorists and bad people. Uh, like there was no kind of opposition message in the media except for this film. Yeah, that's it. And in fact, we see towards the end that like, basically they weren't even letting the media in. Uh, There's this point where journalists sneak under barbed wire and get in. Yeah. And you see an interview with one of the, army um generals and he goes yes the media got in they must have just been very smart we couldn't spot them and then they ask another general right after and he's like oh no the media was in there since the beginning Mm. and he's like no they're not another guy just told us that they sneaked in he goes well that guy's probably mistaken (laughs) and that's that classic kind of everybody contradicting themselves and it doesn't matter because people aren't really paying that attention. Yeah. Anyway, it's a sad film. It makes you realize that you can't fight City Hall and that... Uh, <laughs> That's the lesson you and, got from it? Yeah, and that, you know, if, if there's if there's big money involved, uh, you know, fuck you. Yeah, I think that documentaries like this are kind of important. So the NFB has kind of taken a step back, I think, in the public consciousness in a way that it was very prevalent when we were kids. Yeah, why is that, do you think? Uh, probably budget cuts. Yeah, and, probably, I guess eight years of a Harper government. And they actually had a mandate change in 2002-ish where they decided to focus less on creating their own stuff and going more into co-production and web content. And the problem you have with that is that the identity of something that's from the NFB gets very muddled when you have people like Telefilm and other people investing in a project. Yeah. While like, you know, like all the videos we can find online, we can watch them in their entirety because we live in Canada because the NFB produced them. But a lot of stuff since then you can't watch. If you click on the movie on their database, it goes, oh, you can rent it online. Mm -hmm. And that's a real bummer. I feel like there's a place for NFB films that can take a chunk of the market that Telefilm, which is the main funder of Canadian productions, um, would touch. And that's things like going way back to when they were created that reflect Canadians. Like, I I think they should go back into making um, feature-length films, like fictional films. Mm -hmm. Like you said, um, that kind of Toronto New Wave. If NFB funded that, that would be perfect. That would be great. Because, like, they reflect kind of Canadian lives, the Canadian values, and that the NFB would own them, which would allow them to share them more easily than if somebody like Telefilm produces it. So I think NFB should start making feature films, fictional again. And I think they really need to recapture the kind of importance of the previous stuff that they did. The thing about distribution with NFB, it's free online. You can go, if you're Canadian, watch them. But as far as DVD goes, they're like bare bones... There they are. That's what the movie is, which I find is a little bit distancing when I'm trying to approach stuff. I guess, but like, I don't know, how big is the DVD market for uh, an NFB movie? Well, I think what's important is context, right? And what a DVD can do is contextualize stuff, whether it be with how it was made or the history of what was surrounding the thing. And that's important because once you contextualize something... It, you can historically give it more importance than it would if it just exists as an object. And if you make a label like that, like, you know the way that Criterion puts stuff out and it's like, this is important because it's Criterion. Yeah. If the NFB did something like that, it could kind of put a stamp of like, this is important. You should know about it. Well, I hope you're right. I hope I'm right. NFB, uh, this is a um, my resume. So if you want to contact <laughs> me and you'd like me to produce some uh, DVDs, I'd be happy to do that. Um, also, if you'd like a film called Teddy Bomb for your library. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, contact me. Um, but I would like to go just recommending some films that maybe people haven't heard of. The first one is The Company of Strangers, which was made in 1990 by Cynthia Scott, is a fictional film that stars uh, seven older women, most of them in their mid-70s to early 80s, that their bus breaks down and they're stuck to fend for themselves for a few days as they try to get help. And it's just these real women having improvised conversations with each other about their lives and their like um, wants and their regrets. And I think that it is probably the film in recent memory that brought me to the edge of tears uh, so easily because you're dealing with these women all of them have passed away by the time you're watching this movie because it was made in 1990 and they were in their 80s and they're talking about their life like would you fall in love again if it came along and it's so real and so important and it bums me out that I hadn't heard about it till now. What was the film that most recently brought me to tears? Was it uh, Sausage Party, perhaps? <laughs> and then you have a movie like The Devil at Your Heels from 1981, which is one of the most fun NFB documentaries. That's the one about the stuntman Ken Carter, who basically wanted to be the evil Knievel of Canada. Wanted to be better than evil Knievel. He wanted to be the best. And make this massive uh, motorcycle jump over the St. Lawrence River. Insane. A mile-long jump. This movie's kind of like the burden of dreams of Daredevil documentaries. <laughs> Yeah. and it, it, it's there's something poignant about it this idea that like you know he's he's getting older he's getting on in years he wants to do something that really makes his mark on the world something that's really his legacy it's a fantastic documentary at one point it's revealed that he's never ridden in the rocket car he has to make the jump with and when he gets into it he's like just make me go 250 miles per hour i can handle it it's like he doesn't even mind if he dies in the, in the thing because this is the climax of his life anyway it's all downhill from here <laughs> And I would like to recommend a film that doesn't get talked about very much. It's called uh, Les Chasseurs d'Ombre, or The Shadow Chasers, directed by Jean-Marc Larivière. It's not talked about because it's not quite feature length. It's about 60 minutes long. And it's this fascinating story about a bunch of people across the world who are obsessed with seeing eclipses and going to the perfect place to see these eclipses and what drives them, why it's important for them, and so on and so forth. And I should say... This was directed by my uncle, oh, <laughs> Jean nice. who has done two NFB produced documentaries at this point. You hear that NFB? They're like Justin has deep roots in your organization. <laughs> you should you should just hire him. Where should the NFB or any listeners who want to have their letter read on the podcast write to us? Well, they can write us at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. Any questions or comments or anything like that, feel free to shoot us an email. Or if you have like a missed connection or <laughs> <laughs> I saw a bespectacled man reading a Jerry Lewis biography while mumbling to himself about Steven Seagal on the subway. I think it may have been Will Sloan. I guess I have developed a real shtick for myself, haven't <laughs> yeah, I? Yeah. Quite walking self-parody you're gonna need to go like goth or something like that to like rearrange your, per <laughs> oh, your perception wouldn't that be sad <laughs> i think it would be amazing i think i should just settle down and start watching prestige tv like everyone else <laughs> yeah you haven't crossed that bridge yet right just become a just become a normie like like all the detestable normies out there <laughs> A real Justin the Clue. I'm excited to see uh, The Fate of the Furious this weekend. <laughs> I'm very uh, excited yeah, to see yeah, The yeah, Fate yeah, of the yeah. Furious. And this week on our Patreon, which is the uh, service that if you pay $5 a month, you get four extra episodes of the Important Cinema Club that are about 15, 20 minutes long each. We talked about, in honor of it being the Easter weekend, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Can you separate the artist from the art? Tune in and find out. <laughs> Mel Gibson is a terrible, awful man. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to cut that you, out. You, you, spoiled, you spoiled the surprise. 
So, next week, we're going to be talking about silent films, which we haven't done once yet on this podcast. Is that true? I think so, yeah. Wow. And we're going to be talking about director Oscar Michaud. Uh, the first, well, not the first black filmmaker, but the first really significant and prolific black filmmaker. We'll be looking at, you know, uh, all, all the hits within our gates, um, uh, Symbol of the Unconquered, Body and Soul. But also, I think we should maybe dip a little bit into his talkies, uh, like a Girl from Chicago. And especially, I actually don't think it's on the recent box set that came out from Kino, the Pioneers of African American Cinema. But he had a talkie called God's Stepchildren. Kind, yeah. of, kind of a ripoff of Imitation of Life, which I think is really interesting and really weird. And uh, yeah, j- j- just an incendiary, strange movie. Oscar Michaud is a fascinating filmmaker that I've only seen with Sinar Gates, which is great. Yeah. But when the talkies came around, he's been compared to like Ed Wood because yeah. of those films. And I think that's what one of the things that's great about his filmography. There's such a massive disparity in quality. All right. So my name's Justin LeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So the lineup for uh, the Cannes Film Festival was announced today. All your all your favorites. Michael Haneke is in there. Barry Sonnenfeld is in there. Brian, oh, get shorty himself. Brian Levant. <laughs> uh, I have to say that the, the Cannes con is something that has never really interested me because it's so far away that I'm never going to interact with it. So they might as well be having like a premiere in New York. It doesn't mean anything to me. I think when I was in like high school, uh, con was something I was really interested in. It was something, I mean, first of all, in high school, I had no interests except film. <laughs> so, uh, but do you have any other interests now? Well, it's like, you know, Steven Seagal. The thing is, I, I've been to Europe now. <laughs> oh, and, I haven't. So, well, like I've it's been so far away. I've been to the Louvre. And the thing is like, I can go to the Louvre and see like a, a classic, a great painting where I can only see it there. Why would I cross the Atlantic to see Wall Street Money Never Sleeps <laughs> yeah, and it's Khan premiere? It's the same shitty movie over there as it is here. And the thing about Khan is I've always associated it as a place where people don't really like movies that much. <laughs> like what, what what when did the um the weird uh, revolt happen when it was like led by Godard and Truffaut and stuff that like that? That was I think 68, was it? When yeah. they were like pulling down the the curtains of the of, of the Palais so they couldn't scream <laughs> yeah, anything. That's yeah, that's right. I, I, and I think Roman Polanski at the time said Godard's just playing a revolutionary i've actually lived through <laughs> through this or whatever i do not side with polanski you're a good man justin <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah like you said con is like these big premieres it doesn't feel like as far as the stuff that we hear about there's that many like discoveries to be had well like when i was in high school like it seemed very glamorous it's mm-hmm. like you'd go to the croissette and you'd the, there'd be all these movie stars and all these topless women at the beach and and the, there's the premiere of the new Wong Kar Wai movie at the Palais, the place where Apocalypse Now is shown. A recent Important Cinema Club listener told me that there's one scene that we say every episode. It's time for me to drop it right now. It sounds like a real slobs versus snobs. <laughs> I've never really had any interest in the glamour of like a movie premiere or stuff like well, that. Well, it's not just the glamour. It's also the, you know, it's the, it's the market where, you know, all the all the sleaze peddlers and stuff are showing their movies. It's it's the workaday journalists yeah, it's who the are market. Five, seeing five movies a day. That's like the thing that fascinates me because like that's where uh, people like Canon Films would sell all the big motion pictures and have a slate for the next year. Yeah. And that's where deals are made where Jean-Luc Godard goes, yeah, sure, I'll adapt King Lear uh, yeah. and writes it on a napkin for them. Yeah. Like, have you ever read Roger Ebert's book, uh, Two Weeks in the Midday Sun? Yes. I did it, not like it very much. Really? I think it's probably the best thing he ever wrote. Really? To, to be honest. I think it's a very kind of witty and evocative 
and I think it really captures what Khan probably was like. And oh, you mean like Roger Ebert, like forcing his way through a crowd to get to a Henry Jaglum screening? (laughs) That's one of my favorite parts. Isn't that amazing? Because in in the book, he writes something like, "Damn it, this is the fifth Henry Jaglum screening I haven't been able to get get into in Khan." It's like what? Like Henry Jaglum screenings were sold out. Nobody likes him. Yeah, and like Jaglum, like. Or like ushers them in personally, like the hand the of God. Yeah. Like, I can understand, but it that Roger Ebert book still has that kind of air of cliquish. Everybody knows them, the, each other, and they're very rich. Yeah, well, that's definitely what appealed to me in high school. Oh, uh, but I mean, now, uh, first of all, the idea of seeing movies early is no longer as glamorous uh, as, as it was. Not even that early, like a few months early. Yeah, it's like, you know, this shit, it, it's all on Netflix in three months. Who who really cares? And yeah, again, like traveling across the Atlantic to see movies, not that great. Waiting in line for an hour to see a movie that... Money Monster? Yeah, or a movie that like, you know, oh man, I was there for the historic screening of Fahrenheit 9-11. Like... <laughs> Who gives a shit? It's hey, not... a 15-minute standing ovation. <gasps> Never forget. Yeah. Clerks 2. Clerks 2 played a con, yeah. And also, so they announced the lineup this year, and Khan is, like, it's pretty conservative, frankly. It's, like, Michael Haneke, you know, I don't know, so- Sophia Coppola's in the lineup. A lot of kind of, like... I don't know, stale mid or late career auteurs. And and the, the biggest thing to a shock this year is that the, the Safdie brothers got in, which I, I love the Safdie brothers. I think they're really great, innovative f- filmmakers. But I mean, if Can were really on the cutting edge, they would have been in for their previous movie. It's like Can always gets them just just a little bit like they're conservative. Yeah. Well, they want the big names, right? Yeah. They're like, it's the glitz and the glamour. It's not about like we're finding these cutting edge new films. And also there are so many kind of like diplomatic uh, issues at play. Like there always has to be an Italian movie in the uh, lineup. So then you get like Nanny Moretti for some reason becomes like a con (laughs) God, even though he's not very good or like Paolo Sorrentino becomes a a con God. Well, is there any other film festival we can think of that it's more about like the political maneuvering than it is con? Like that's what I think of when I think of who won like the biggest prize there. It's like, like, if you look back on the list, and you, if you went, I'm going to watch all the films that won the biggest prizes, you'd be like, what is this? Why am I watching this? But I mean, I will say that I, like a year ago, I'm clearly still interested in this shit because I bought... You love it. I love it, yeah. I Like, I bought uh, at BMV for for a reduced price. The I King of Khan. Gilles Jacob's memoir, Citizen Khan. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And he talks, because I was really interested in hearing him describe, like, what all the juries were like. Mm-hmm. Because the juries are all led by, you know, famous directors and movie stars. And you, you read about these juries, and you see the list, and you think, God, what was it like? To be in that room? Yeah, with like... all these people together. So, like, the book is sort of, like, slightly satisfying on that level. I always love, you know, seeing the jury press conference thinking, okay, who was it who supported this movie mm-hmm. getting the Palm d'Or? Like when Quentin Tarantino was there and Old Boy won the Palm d'Or? Yeah, or but Fahrenheit well, no, Fahrenheit 9-11 won the Palm d'Or. Wait, and, it did? Yeah, and uh, Old Boy won the uh, uh, Grand Prix. Also known as the second prize. And, like, I think Tarantino probably would have rather had Old Boy win. Absolutely, yeah. Like, that has, like Fahrenheit 9-11. Well, also, also, third place that year, uh, the special prize went to Apichitpong's Tropical Malady. Mm. And uh, Tarantino, in his press conference, said, this was the movie that most divided the jury, but uh, those who loved it really loved it, and we respected their passion. <laughs> so, what that means... So, so clearly, Tarantino, Tarantino does not like that movie. Does not like slow cinema. <laughs> yeah. I mean, which is weird, considering 
Ewing if you watch his last three films that he's made. Well, like, there's this interview on YouTube of Clint Eastwood talking about when he was jury president, and that was the year they gave it to uh, Pulp Fiction. And I think the, the movie that had been really favored to win that year was Kieslowski's Red. Mm-hmm. But, Great movie. Yeah, and I think Through the Olive Trees was also up for it that year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and why did Pulp Fiction win? Well, you see uh, Clint Eastwood being interviewed. It's like, well, we watched all these movies and uh, some of them were great and some of them were good and some of them were kind of like watching paint dry and, uh, <laughs> and we'd, had a, we'd had a few pretty uh, we'd had a few pretty slow ones and then Pulp Fiction came along and it, oh, really, yeah. I thought, really, this was really something. I mean, that's why like grand juries are so crazy, right? Is that there's only as much value as the combined group of people can give to it. Like, yeah, uh, I, you know these are these are mere mortals. <laughs> or, or like uh, a pitch at Pong won the Palm d'Or when Tim Burton was head of the jury, and you think, well, does Tim Burton love slow cinema? I would love if he does. Or maybe he does. Or maybe he he responded to that movie because it's like it's got you know space aliens, it's got like a <laughs> space monkeys or whatever. Simple old Tim Burton. Yeah. yeah. Although I do remember at his press conference that year, he said. Uh, the movie was like a beautiful strange dream oh so probably that's what attracted him to it but you know you can i guess from the jury you can learn unexpected things about filmmakers like that tim burton likes a pitch pong <laughs> are you going to be tuning in this year to see like who wins of the course. grand prix and stuff like of that of course yeah but what i especially like about Khan is when you look back through history and you see some of the unexpected movies that were uh in the official competition uh shrek 2 <laughs> I, I swear to Christ, was official competition. Also, um, Splitting Airs. Have you ever heard of that? No. It was uh, Eric Idle and Rick Moranis. It was a comedy. <gasps> Eric Idle wrote it. And it was a comedy about how he, he and Rick Moranis were switched at birth, and one of them was supposed to be a British lord, and the other one the wasn't. Prince and the Popper. Yeah. It never gets old. And that was official competition three weeks after it opened in America and, <laughs> and flopped. Well, if we could get Rick Moranis up on stage, we're going to program the film. How do you think that the audience would have reacted if, like, Shrek 2 won the Palm d'Or? They should have just let it win the Palm d'Or, just just for, just to troll. Just to troll? Don't you mean just to ogre? Oh, God. 